0: Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do their claims hold water to a naturalist, or are there better explanations out there? This is episode 42, I'm your host, Frederick. It is still vacation time here in Sweden when this is recorded, and I don't really have access to my usual library. So I decided to do an episode about a topic that is my speciality, the Vendel and Viking period in Scandinavia. If Andrew Kinkella could talk about his work on Mayan cenotes on his show Pseudo-Archeology with Andrew Kinkella, I can spend an hour or so talking about the Vikings and the common myth, darn it. I'll talk about the beginning of the Vendel slash Viking age, then we will discuss who would be a Viking. I'll then talk a little bit about the horned helmets and that they actually are a real thing. We have just put them in the wrong period. Then I will go on and upset some of you maybe by talking about viking tattoos and magic. We will learn why the vikings needed lots and lots of sheep. And lastly, I will show that the Scandinavian society during this era was a constant beauty competition among men. Now, remember that you find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientadians.com. There you will also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. If you like the podcast, I would appreciate it if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now, when we have finished with our preparation, let's dig into the episode. So where do we start a story like this? As with any other tale, we might be interested in knowing when our account takes place. So when we speak about the Viking Age, we discuss a relatively short chapter in Scandinavian history. For the purpose of our saga, we will also include the Vendel period, an even shorter branch of our tree of time, and it is, I believe, relatively unknown outside of Sweden perhaps. Now, when it comes to chronology, it's understandably easy to forget that there is no global Stone Age, Bronze Age, or Metal Age in general. For example, some of you might think the Iron Age would be the same across Europe and the Mediterranean. Unfortunately, that's far from the case here. For example, in the Near East, by convention, the Iron Age lasted from the Bronze Age collapse around 1200 BCE to about 500 BCE. Compare this to Central and Western Europe, where the Iron Age is defined to be between 800 BCE to Year 1 BCE. Add to this mess Northern Europe, where the Iron Age lost from 500 BCE to 800 CE. To throw some more chronology your way here in Sweden, we have split the Iron Age in a couple of sub-chronologies, starting at pre-Roman Iron Age, then we have Roman Iron Age and Migration Period. Continuing through the Vendel period, that is set to begin around 550 CE. So while Sweden is enjoying an excellent Vendel period, the rest of Europe has already entered the Middle Ages. but when does the Viking Age start, then? It was June, but Cedric still used his cloak. The air was nippy, and one could easily believe it was March. His belly grumbled. While the monastery had been spared from the worst of the famine, they were not immune. Lunch had not been too long ago, but he was already longing for supper. He thought while scurrying past the refectory for his work in the herb garden. None had just been sung, and it was time for work. The abbot had been looking worried, but who could really blame him? Cendric had seen the signs himself. The sudden whirlwinds, the lightning cracking over the sky, and even worse, dragons flying in the horizon. And one could think they moved closer each time the lightning struck. A sign of the devil if there was one. Cendric took up a shovel. No need to worry now, God has sent me a bit of sun and the wind is still. All will be well in God's hand, Cedric thought. He pushed the shovel into the earth, but suddenly the tint and ambulation from the abbey's bells boomed. It could not be. This had never happened, but in the distance he could hear the shout of warriors. Lindin's farm was under attack. Today, we usually put the start of the Viking Age at the raid of the Monastery of Lindisfarne in 793 CE. This monastery was located on a small island in Northumbria. At the time, it was an important place for the Catholic faith in Britain, and many churches saw this location as their mother church. But the attack on Lindisfarne really etched into the minds of Britain and... We have details of the attack preserved in two of the surviving manuscripts of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. There's also a letter from the scholar Alcuin of York to Bishop Higbald in Lindisfarne. Alcuin wrote, The distress of your suffering fills me daily with deep grief, when the heathen desecrated God's sanctuaries, and poured the blood of saints within the compass of the altar. Destroy the house of our hope. Trample the bodies of saints in God's temple like animal dung in the street. Now, since the attack can't have started a whole culture, the start date is a bit up for discussion. We see a lot of proto-viking elements during the Wendell period. And we might have to ask ourselves if there's really a need to have a chronological separation between these two periods. Because some of the typical elements we see among the vikings seems to have been far spread and established lore in 700 CE and we know this due to the picture stone we have found on gotland for example gotland is an island in the baltic sea that through the ages has been an essential hub for particularly trade however the picture stone shows us that the culture and stories we primarily associate with the vikings were established on gotland far east of Denmark, Norway and mainland Sweden, most likely already during 700 CE. And we find 10 stones located in a small parish of Ardre on Gotland. Some were actually runestones and others were picture stones, one of which had become known as the Verlunda stone. And the name comes from the Poetic Edda and the Verlunda a story that revolves around the smith Völund and his fate after being taken captive by Nithudur, the lord of Njarar. Most scholars place this in the modern Swedish province of Nerke, today in central Sweden. Scholars, however, will often refer to this as Ardre Eight. On the stone we can see Odin on Sleipnir, the eight-legged horse, and we can see Völund escaping Nithudur. We also see ships that gives us a bit of insight in how the viking age sail might have looked as but we have more stones still on Gotland, we find in lärbro parish four phallic shaped picture stones two of them referred to as stora hammar one and three have become somewhat famous due to their depictions on one stone we have six panels depicting mythological and religious function The panel that's maybe the most interesting is panel three, where what's usually thought of as a depiction of sacrifices. To the left, we can see, hanging from a tree, a man. And to his right, we see another man bent over and, well, another gentleman using what seems to be some sort of weapon on his back. Above the scene is a Valknut and a raven. Could it be a blood eagle depicted on this stone? Well, we can't be entirely sure, but it can be argued that human sacrifice was most likely quite important within the Viking society. And On the fourth panel we can see what seems to be a reference to a story from, among others, uh, Skaldar skapar mål about Hildr. In this panel we see two groups of warriors about to go to war against each other. On the left side, however, it seems as the group is led by a woman. We find this scene again at a different picture stone in Smith's Parish on Gotland. And we will have to talk about women, warriors, valkyrs, and the Amazons of the North in another episode. On the last panel, and it's hammer 3, we can see a depiction of Odin stealing the mead of poetry from the giants Gunloth and sutunger And it's Interesting detail is that the eagle in the scene has a beard like Odin is supposed to have had. But it shows that what we would refer to as Viking culture seems to have been present before the attack on Lindin's Farn. And that the period might have to be redefined among us scholars. So the beginning of the Viking Age is a bit unclear. So let's move on to a different topic. Who would be considered a Viking? If you would go online today on your social media site of choice and start to read the discussion on Vikings, you will hear a lot of claims being thrown around there. Some will tell you that Viking is not a culture, it's a job title, and some will claim it is a culture, and some will of course spew neo-Nazi junk at you. So how is it then? Is Viking a job, a culture, or something more complex? The short answer is yes when archaeologists or historians speak about vikings we don't only talk about those who went on raids we often talk about a culture but since we have associated the start of the viking age with raiding it's not surprising that we have named it after raiders so when we speak about vikings we usually talk about a group living primarily in modern scandinavia that shared language, culture, and religion. And we don't really know what Vikings refer to themself as. So if you had asked Ulfer or Gunhilder, they would most likely just give you the location where they lived as their, you know, epithets, so to say. Now, we would have gotten different answer if we would have asked the people living around and near the Vikings on what they call them. Most common, however, would be pagans or Gentiles, it seems like. There's also called the Danes in Britain. In today's France, the Vikings were referred to as Northmen or Dane. Now, the Irish separated between Norwegians, who they called Fingal, translated to something like white foreigners, and the Danes were referred to as Dubgile, translated to black foreigner. The Swedes didn't often heed west, but spent most of the times going east. Where they got the names such as Rus or Varjag. You might have heard it as Väring in the past. While the term Rus might sound like something more associated to Russia. The origin of the time might be from Ruslagen, a coastal area north of Stockholm. We find the Rus term for Sweden still today in the Finnish language, where Sweden is named Rutusi. I'm sorry, Finnish speaker. The word could also originate from Ru ro or rowing, since the Swedish Viking often traveled on the rivers where sailing was not always possible. So they had to row instead to get uh, further ahead on the rivers. How about the word Viking? What does it mean? To be straight with you, there has yet to be an agreement on the word's origin. In the 8th century English, we find the phrase Viking. But there are question marks if this word has the same meaning as Viking. The word Viking also have a masculine and feminine form. So it's Vikinger and Viking. And it translates to Sea Warrior and Oversea War Expedition. But it can also refer to a person's name or by name, uh, in some cases, too. So if you ask the internet experts, they would most likely tell you that the words origin come from these pirates hiding in bays or inlets. And in Swedish, these are called VIK. It's a simple explanation, but not really satisfying. There are about five main theories for the word's origin, and VIK is just one of them. Another would be that they originated from the Norwegian hamlet viken, or is its name after the nautical term for a distance called vika or week. It's one of the more unlikely origins of the word. The next contender is the Baltic word Vik, originating from the Latin vicus and would be translated to harbor or market. Lastly, you could argue a connection with the word for travel or walking, which would be vikja. Now, none of the above has really been proven yet, and all of them have different flaws, some more than others, but if you hear someone making a claim, you can now put this in a larger perspective. Something more interesting is that viking is most used for people who went west, I have not been able to find a runic text given the name Viking to people heading east so far. And for example we find a masculine version of Viking on the runestone G370 in Hablingbo on Gotland. Havtar och Heliger rejste stein efter helga raised the stone in memory of Helgi, their father. He traveled west with the Vikings. With the masculine version, it's clear that Helgi went west with a group for war or plunder. Now compare this to the feminine version where Viking seems to allude more towards an expedition or journey, not necessarily war, for example on stone VG61. Tola set stein senna eftir gir son sin, harðad godan dräng, Savard so ward daudur of Westergum i Vikinge. Tola placed the stone in memory of Ger, her son, a very good valiant man. He was killed on the west way in Viking. And we see the same word uses in DR 330, where the author talk about courageous set of men who went west on Vikings. As I mentioned, Vikings mainly connected with the western path, but exceptions exist, as always. We find a stone in Scania named DR 334 that talks about the north. Note the feminine version of the t- term Viking. Father let hugvar runesar fessa efter Assur. Roder sin Ernoder döder i Vikingu. Father had these runes cut in memory of Assur, his brother, dead up north in Viking. Then we have a strange text to add to this ever-growing puzzle. It talks about Vikings and how a Swede protected the area against them. Here we see the masculine form of the word, indicating that it's sea warriors that's led by a competing jarl or earl that the stone is referring to. It is from the later part of the Viking Age, and it's written from a Christian perspective, it seems like. The stone in question is dubbed U617, and it goes as follows. Ginlaug, Syster Sigradur och Ferra gauts. Hon let gera bru fessa och reisa sten fenna upp Assur. Asur, bonda sin son Hakungars jarl. Så var Vikinga vådorror med Geiti. Gud hjälp hans nu und och ok Salu. Ginlaug, Holmgers daughter, Sigridur and Gauds sister. She had this bridge made and this stone raised in memory of Asur, her husband, man, Earl Hawkins' son. He was the Viking watch with Geatir. May God now help his spirit. So there is a clear connection between Viking and warrior, not necessarily pirate, as some want to interpret the term. But we should note how it can also be used as a sea-based exploration term. The most exciting part, I believe, is the clear connection with Viking and heading westward. So, can we settle the internet dispute about who can call oneself a Viking? If you use the Viking's definitions of the word, you need to be in the Navy or do a lot of sea-based exploration to be calling yourself a Viking. But if you use the scholars and the researchers' definition of the term... You would only need to participate in the practices and culture associated with the people living in the Viking Age. And the meaning also will differ depending on in what era you're using it. So to the internet Vikings out there, feel free to call yourself a Viking. But please, please note that a person from the Viking Age would most likely look at you and ask, What by ballers balls are you doing, man? The exception if is if you're an Nazi, then you're just a wasted bag of air. After the break, we will talk a bit about the origin of the horned Viking helmets. Stay tuned! Now, something that seems to be discussed quite frequently and brought up from time to time is if the Viking helmet had horns which seems to be a lingering idea that never really go away. Even if these types of helmets is slowly disappearing from the public mind, it seems to be a glacial process. Sadly, the Vikings did not wear helmet adorned with horns into battle while letting out blood-freezing roars. The origin of the horned Viking helmet, as we see them today on the tele or in the comics, have been traced by Roberta Frank to Germany. In 1876, the preparation for the premiere of Richard Wagner's opera Der Ring des Nibelungen were in motion. This opera mixes North mythology with German medieval ideas, creating the long-lasting idea that German heritage being connected to the Viking world. But while the stage was being built, the singer's practices, the customers was being created. Professor Carl Emil Dweppler was the costume designer of the opera, and he did something that had not been done before. He put cow horns on the helmet the Vikings would wear. Until 1878, there had not been a single drawing or depiction of Vikings with horns on their helmet. But this would change rather quickly. The image spread like a cat meme and the horned helmet would be found on advertisement, painting drawings and even dinner menus. While horns were new in 1870, the idea of viking having lavish decoration on their helmets was far from a novel idea. Previous depiction of the pagan vikings were a man wearing a winged helmet. Taking the viewer's imagination to a place where these pagans worshipped nature in a wild state with a complete freedom. Horned helmets were reserved for Gauls and Britons. While nobody had previously depicted Vikings with horn, maybe Dweppler was basing this on a new find or discovery. The crux here is that we never found a Viking helmet with horns. But to make things interesting, horned helmets have been a thing in Scandinavia in the past. The issue is that the helmets are connected to the Scandinavian Bronze Age. So there are finds of helmet with horns, but they are not viking and they were found in a Danish bog in 1942. The find is known as the Växjö helmet, a set of nearly identical twin helmets. And in 2019, birch tar was found in one of the horns, allowing us to date the helmets with C14. The sample was about 20 mg and the calibrated C14 result placed the helmet around 1006 to 857 BCE, firmly within the late Nordic Bronze Age. Where we find other objects that actually depict person with horned helmets the period between thousand to seven hundred and fifty bce contains a lot of figures adorning horned helmet actually often they are in pairs and you could make a case for their depicting some sort of hero twins or twin heroes but we also find these in groups or as lone individuals on what we refer to as Fogdar yoke, we see a pair of twins with horned helmet. And the Grevensveng figures wear a set of bronze figurines with horned helmet and other in acrobatic poses. Similar to the depiction we find, for example, in the Minoan culture. We also see these horned figures on the Vestrup razor. We find bronze age petroglyphs in southern Sweden, such as in Tanum we have some motifs that repeat with horned warriors lifting ships into the air and other features of strength so it's most likely connected to some sort of hero story that's unfortunately been lost to time and helle van kilde and others have recently made a quite compelling case for these motifs originating in the mediterranean I think we need a bit more evidence before being able to say anything definitely. However, this showed that the idea of the Nordic people with horned helmets isn't impossible. We just need to put it on the people living 2000 years before the Vikings. And before you write me a comment, there are the pictures of figurines with horns on helmets from the Viking and Vandal ages. We see horned helm figures on the bronze matrix from Erland, for example dating to around 500 CE then we have three figures that might might depict Odin one was found in upokra in Scania another on Levide Gotland and a third was found in Staria Ladoga Russia nonetheless they are, nonetheless these are not the horns of cow variety and so far we have not found an actual helmet with horns in from the viking age in scandinavia the viking helmets were all built to be used in battle it seems like helmet for ritual seem to not have been used in during this period compared to the helmets we find during the late scandinavian bronze age they are dark from the tips of their toes right up to their necks trees pictures and the like this is how Ahmad ibn Fadlan described the Rusaya. He met in the Volga Bulgars capital in 922 CE. Ibn Fadlan didn't spend much time talking about the Rus body art, and this is the only known depiction of what can be assumed to be Viking tattoo artist. As you know, this is not much at all and the wording Ibn Fadlan used here is a bit ambiguous and could be simply body art with paint, or it could be some sort of scarification where some substance with color has been added to the wounds. We don't know, unfortunately. It would have made things easier if we had found any tattooing tools preserved from the viking, or even an earlier culture for that matter. But in other culture, tattoo tools are mostly made out of bone or other organic material that doesn't really last. The exception is, of course, the ancient Egyptian, who seems to have used some sort of needles made out of bronze. One argument against the Viking having tattooed tools out of bones is that we find a lot of bone combs and other devices from the Viking Age. And the soil on Gotland, for example, is excellent for preserving bone due to the shark rich dirt. So we find a lot of human skeletons and other bone tools there preserved in a very pristine state but not something that we would be able to use as a tool for making tattoos has yet been found on gotland or anywhere else in sweden for that matter now we also have other examples of body art tools made out of wood or other organic materials which unfortunately doesn't really preserve well in general and could be the reason why we haven't found any tattoo tools but something worth mentioning is that we neither find tattoo art on the mummies found in bogs around denmark and sweden and i think it's worth bringing up here that the skin turns quite dark due to the natural processes in the marshes i have not seen any ir photos of the bodies but an ir photo could maybe reveal any hidden tattoos on the skins this method has for example been used with scythian corpses frozen in the thundra and we know that the were around in europe from for example etsy who lived on the brink of the early bronze age there in northern italy a lack of evidence is, of course, not evidence for something not existing. As I mentioned, we, we have a witness talking about body art on what mostly was Scandinavian Vikings. However, we will need more evidence to be able, from a scientific perspective, to say that the Vikings really used and had body art. Most of the, as I call them, Instagram Vikings who decorate themselves with these Viking tattoos don't really have. Of course, Viking tattoos. At most, they have some sort of reimagined cosplay of what the Vikings might have had. But in many cases, it's not even that, but later reimagination of Viking art. Take, for example, the Vägvisir symbol. I know it's a popular Viking tattoo, and supposedly you won't get lost if you have it on you. The issue is that the vägviser only can be found in a text by ger vigfusson in 1860. vigfusson claims that he got this from an icelandic text that he called the huld manuscript now it seems as vigfusson seems to have lost the original manuscript at one point or hear me out he made the whole thing up and just based it on later icelandic magical symbols Historiska museet in Stockholm has a short book of 35 pages with magic signs from Iceland in its collection. They resemble a bit of those Vigfusson depicts but this book was written around 1600 CE. So a bit after the Viking Age. And this manuscript is fascinating because magic seems to have still been in practice and even survived the witch process in Scandinavia and Iceland. Now, none of the magical symbols depicted in this book are the Vägvisir, however. In my opinion, these symbols are a mishmash of later Christian thought and viking inspired art i find it most likely the Geir made the whole manuscript up later to sell his story when esotericism was on the rise throughout europe and if you like the symbol nothing stops you from getting it tattooed on your body a word of caution however most of the signs you find online often have some runes written around the symbol nearly all i saw with my quick Perusing had just the Futhark written around them. The Futhark is basically Viking ABC. They didn't order it ABC. They had it uh, F, U, C and so on. While it might be better than spelling out soup. Don't think that this rune has any profound meaning so to say. Then we have the Viking tattoos that are not Viking tattoos. And you should not get at all. The shin is maybe the first that comes to mind. We find it, for example, with the Maori called uh, Tamoko and among the indigenous people of Alaska and Canada, In Hengrichin, the shin tattoos are referred to as Jidwetu, the Inupiaq call this marking Tavlugun, and the Arctic regions it's name Kakinit. And we should remember that these symbols have a deep meaning for the people within this culture. Often practices such as tattooing, religion, and other tradition was outlawed by the governments of these areas. And due to this, they were almost on the brink of being exterminated and forgotten. So please, please don't get a shin tattoo if you don't belong to these groups. I've seen the TikTok filter that includes the shin mark uh, and you're supposed to be Viking when you have it. And just don't. Just don't use it. Ten and Inuapk has the right to their culture, and it's rightfully a closed practice. And there is zero evidence that the viking would have these type of markings. And if we listen to the only account we have about the viking body art, they did not paint above the neck. So if you want to look like a viking, the tattoo route is a bit uncertain, to be honest. What we do know is that they did file their teeth. Usually we find horizontal grooves on the Viking teeth, bringing them a quite unique aesthetic. So there you have it. If you want to be a Viking, you might have to do some dental work. Now, if filing your teeth is a bit much for you and still want a tattoo with Viking theme, Then I would recommend that you look up Peter Aukmund Madsen and his tattoo studio, The Northern Black. And he has published a couple of books with Viking inspired motifs that really catch the Viking art and adapting it to an awesome modern tattoo. Welcome back. Most of you might associate the Vikings with fearsome warriors. Which have been the public perception for many years, but as research and archaeology went forward, this picture has started to change. While the Vikings enjoy raiding a monastery or two, another image has started to develop. The Vikings were tradesmen who sold goods and service for silver, gold, or other goods not found up in the cold north. But the real truth is most likely that the Vikings were highly opportunists they raided where the raiding was good and traded where the trading would be the most beneficial for them now was this life of going out raiding and trading the something that majority of the population enjoyed i hear particularly online that the vikings were farmers just looking to expand their farm line While farming was most likely necessary for many to be self-sufficient, animal husbandry were more likely to have been important for the society as a whole. As Professor Neil Price pointed out, the Viking society depended on wool. Most clothing were made out of yarn, and maybe most important, the ship's sail were entirely of wool the Scandinavian ship technology were improving rapidly the sail was the biggest key to the success and it seems to have been introduced quite late up here in the cold north not earlier than 700 CE and these sails were square and created out of wool strips sewn together either horizontally or vertically to make them more wind resistant They added a contexture of tar, tallow, fat, or other greasy substances on the sail. But how much wool would they need to create one of these sails? A large ship would need a sail containing about 1 kilo wool per square meter. A medium-sized boat would get away with maybe an 80 square meter sail that clock in about 50 kilos. Add to this math all the clothes the sailor needed for the open sea and then sets of clothes later at land and then they most likely had a reserve sail they had tents and they had rugs and the amount of wool starts to add up here and the scandinavian sheeps during this time produce about one kilo wool per year so to fit a ship with all the items required and a crew of 32 sailors or more if it was one of the larger vessels we would need a lot we would need a quite a big herd of sheep then we have all the work associated with creating the fabric there was no machines at this time so it's required humans to do everything from scratch to uh, sewing, everything. Textile artilleries have calculated that a two-person team could create one medium-sized sale in about one year, if they work 10 hours every single day. So that's a single sale. As I mentioned, you would not go out without a backup sale. So we're up now in two years and four people. Then we need to add all the other stuff they would require and... Some fleet during the height of the Viking could contain over 200 ships. Calculations have been made and the amount of cloth used for sailing in Scandinavia might have been around 1 million square meters. So that is quite a lot of sheep that they would have required. Remember, one sheep, one kilo and one square meter, roughly one kilo of wool. Two millions of sheep. Not... that's not cheap (laughs) it is unlikely also that the free people were doing all this work and it might even explain the origin of raiding in scandinavia to get slaves or thralls to work the textile mills and towards the later viking age we start to see farms merging together Previously, it was thought that maybe the farms consolidated due to migration or war or for other reasons. But it seems now as if families started to go together to get enough land for these sheep herds to have grazing land. And during this time, we also start to find weaving huts on these premises, and they're often sunken quite far into the ground, and they seem to have been quite harsh environments to work in. It's hard to see a free woman spending 10 hours every day ruining their line, lungs and eyesight in these little huts. So raiding probably became a necessity to support a textile production for the increase in ship production. So it seems as we Scandinavian create a vicious circle for ourselves that was just going and going and going. So was everybody warriors, no, most would likely just trying to survive on their small farmland, and even more might probably have raised cattle and sheep to produce more sales to get more wealth for the community. After the break, how was the Viking society structure, and was it important to be beautiful? (laughs) I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you my dear listener for tuning in. It's great having you here exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show. For as little as two fifty per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness monster asked for, you will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine. The benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. We will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupangentaneous.com support to sign up. Together we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. we have mentioned thralls here and the scandinavian slave trade but how did the vikings structure their society can we see any classes or were they all set as equal reading the materials left to us reading the materials left to us we can see three levels in the scandinavian society at the lowest we find the thralls or enslaved people who most likely comprised a fourth of the population These were people without rights and freedoms, and were kind of left to the whims of their masters. Then we have the free people, who could vary from very prosperous merchant to, you know, the two-goat cottage barely scraping by, and this class made up the vast majority of the population. Lastly, we have the elite, the two percenters of... Scandinavian society. These classes have quite an exciting origin story within the Viking mythology. If we read Ríg's Thulavir, offered quite the insight in the Scandinavian view on class and society. In this story, we follow the god Heimdall, who wanders the earth in the disguise of Ríger. On his journey, he meets an old couple called Great Grandmother and Great Grandfather is served a heavy thick loaf of bread and meat and sleeps between the old couple, for some reason. Nine months later, the great-grandmother gives birth to a son they name Thrall. In the saga, this child is described as... He began to grow and thrive well. On his hands there was a wrinkled skin, knotted knuckles, thick fingers. He had an ugly face, a crooked back, long heels... Thrall was then, well, not married since he was a slave, but coupled with Thyr. She was a slave girl who is described to having dirty feet, being sunburned, and had a bent nose. Thrall and Thyr are connected with specific tasks and labors within the saga, and with these position in the society on the lowest part of the hierarchy. Heimdall or Rieger continued his journey and met another couple in a hall with a cozy fire burning. They are the grandfather and the grandmother and they were well kept and in good physique. Again, Rieger was served food a bit better this time and slept between the couple. Nine months later, the son Carl, the name would translate to householder basically, was born and described to having lively eyes, red hair and a healthy color on the skin. Carl is associated with the free people and he'll learn again that he this class is supposed to do specific job lastly heimdall comes to the last hall a grand construction with its port vetting south the couple here is even more beautiful and dressed in finer clothes than the previous couple and they are young and this time heimdall is served Roasted the birds and the best cuts from the pig on silver plates and get fine wine with a meal. Again, since even the ultra-wealthy didn't have guest room, heined sleep between the man and the wife. Nine months later, surprise, the son Jarl was born, or Earl, dressed in fine silk and he had blonde, beautiful hair, bright cheeks and piercing eyes. Earl grew up here on the benches. He began swinging linden shields, fit bows ring, bend the elbow, put shafts on arrows, hurl a javelin, his frankish spears, ride horses, urge on hounds, wheel swords and practice swimming. From this saga we can tell there seems to have been three crucial qualities within the Scandinavian society. Appearance, your capabilities and your influence. What is also interesting to note here that compared to the Greek pantheon, where a child of a god would have extraordinary power and be a bit higher up within the society, this seems not to be the case here, and they don't really receive any special gift in the saga. I also find this fascinating, the stark contrast between Ibn Fadlan's description of Scandinavian hygiene and the archaeological records, the sagas, and chronicles like John of Wallingford's. In comparison, Ibn Fadlan has nothing, nothing nice to say about the Viking way of hygiene, but the archaeological record indicates that they cared about their looks. A calm was basically a necessity in the Scandinavian society, add to these tweezers, razors, scissors, and statues we have found depicting people of the era usually have nicely twirled mustaches and finely trimmed beards and nicely cut hair. And the chronicle John of Wallingford described the Scandinavian as follows. According to their country's costumes, in the habit of combing their hair every day, to bathe every Saturday, to change their clothes frequently, and to draw attention to themselves by means of many such frivolous whims. In this way, they besieged the married women's virtue and persuaded the daughters of even noble men to become their mistresses. So looks were important in Scandinavian society and could very well affect your status and how far you could move within the society. Now, there was mobility to some extent, especially if you could prove yourself capable and maybe increase your wealth and influence over the sphere mostly this nobility was referred to the people of the free men of course elite could move down not necessarily higher up since there was on top but it happened also that enslaved people could be released from their bondage we even have two runestones from foreign or maybe current slaves that was ordered for them or others For example, on Adelsö, just outside of Birka, we find one stone, carved on the order by Thulir. He refers to himself as Briti. it's a special class of thrall, and he could claim this stone by right with his wife. Usually thralls could not have wives, so one could ask if maybe Thulir was now free. We also see Håkon being mentioned. Who was probably the jarl on adels uh, during this time where tule raised the stone so he must have been a quite important person within the society another example is in denmark where toki the blacksmith raised a stone in memory of his former master who gave him freedom and gold even if these were free men they would not have been equal to the born free men in some sense, the thralls would always be a thrall in the eye of the law. It might have been even worse for the woman since most of the slave trade have focused on sex trafficking. If you want to wash away the picture of the brave Viking warrior, you should really read Ibn Fadlan's account. It's a gruesome tale, I must warn you. And we will have to return to Viking age and focus more on women in this society. We didn't really get around to this now. And I see that we would need maybe a full episode discussing only the women and gender in Scandinavian culture. And there's undoubtedly a couple of myths that we can expel there too, but this will be a later episode. because next time we will be back investigating our alien Overlord in one or another way. But till then, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or... To your friend at the trench. I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast, and you can find me on most social media sites. I post quite frequently on TikTok, for example. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or you want to write that email in all caps because you're upset about your viking tattoo, spelling soup, you find my contact info on the website. You will also find all the sources and resources to use this podcast in the website. This time you will mostly find further reading suggestion on some good resources on the Viking culture. I also thrown in some of my sources if you want to question what I just said. Sandra Martellore created the intro music and are outraised by the band called Tralscrew who sings their song Hut. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes until next wait 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 don't forget head to the archaeological podcast network there you find even more shows more content and if you become a member you get early releases whenever we manage to get that to happen uh, you get bonus content and you get a lot more and you're supporting all the shows on the network by becoming a member i would highly recommend it you also get access to slack channels and some other exciting stuff where you can chat privately with me or andrew Kinkella for that matter if you want to bother him a bit extra but yeah until next time keep shoveling that science Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as 250 per episode. Go to diggingupancientdennis.com/support. That is go to diggingupancientdennis.com/support to read more information and sign up right there.